Great are you, Lord. Amen. We talked about this idea of centered relationships last spring. And if you weren't here for that, here's the really quick summary, and there's a lot of thoughts behind this. But we have to start here in order for this morning to make sense. And uh, I don't pretend that people remember what I say on Monday, let alone from last spring. We said this, we said, whatever it is that I'm centered on, whatever it is that my heart is centered on, my mind is centered on, whatever I'm centered on informs my beliefs and my values. As a matter of fact, often what I'm centered on is the source of what I believe And it is my highest value. If you put this graph up here, we said that that, therefore, what I'm centered on determines my beliefs and my values, which shapes my decisions and my actions. My behaviors and the way that I decide what I will and won't do is shaped by what I trust in and what's most important to me. So what I'm centered on determines my beliefs and my values, which then shapes my decisions and my actions, which then determines my influence in my generation. And that determines whether or not I'll experience any form of lasting satisfaction in life. And many of us live life at the last step of that process. We are really aware of how satisfied we are or are not today. With our circumstances, with our situation, with our finances, with our relationships, we're really aware of our satisfaction. And usually we don't source it back to what we have chosen to center our life around. As a matter of fact, most of our language is that we're actually a victim of whether or not we are or are not satisfied when we actually have responsibility to live in constant awareness and reshaping of what we are centered on because only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart. And when I come into a relationship and I put another person at the center of my beliefs and my values, and that person's well-being or their happiness shapes my decisions and my actions, my influence becomes really narrow in life, and my satisfaction will ride the roller coaster of their satisfaction, of their highs and their lows. And usually the reason I put a person at the center is because I like how I feel, which means actually I'm at the center. I want to experience more satisfaction, so I'm putting this person there. And so we see that in dating relationships and in marriage. And we even see that with parents and their kids. I'm going to make my kids the center of the universe and they bear the weight of our beliefs and our values. And truly we're seeing a a mental health crisis among a generation who can't bear the weight of our faith. We've made them the center of a universe that their shoulders are not broad enough to handle. And so we believe that only when Jesus is at the center can life possibly make any sense. But that's not this morning's sermon. That's just a recap. This morning, we're going to step into that and go, if I'm centered on Jesus, then how does that affect all my other relationships? If he's taking territory, which I believe the Christian life, if, if you could call it this, the Christian life is Jesus in his kindness taking more and more real estate on the center of our hearts. It's him setting us free from more and more of self. It's setting us free from other people who can't actually satisfy us. And as he takes more ground, what then is the result of our relationships? You notice that there's outlines in your seats. So if you're a guest today, you might think that's just a thing we do. That's not a thing we normally do. 
This morning's a different morning. Part of the reason that there's an outline in your seat is to intentionally send the message before your butt hits the seats. Now we're doing things different today. We're trying to confront you with the fact that this is a different kind of conversation today. This is also the single stuck button repeated conversation I have the most with people who aren't happy with their satisfaction. (laughs) They typically will walk into my office or call me on my phone and say, listen, man, I'm just struggling with this thing. And we will typically, at some point in time, more often than not, end up sourcing that conversation back to the topic that we're going to discuss today. So we're going to start off by looking at a text. It is going to be on the notes in the screen, but I'm encouraging you to grab your Bibles. We're going to still say our creed together. This morning's not that different. We are still going to uh, do our tradition of holding up our Bibles and declaring our creed together this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. I hope that some of us really meant that. Not that you don't other weeks. I hope that sincerely before we walk into this, we would say, God, here's my heart. Change me. God, I want to walk out of here different than how I walked in. Before we look at our text here, turn to to Hebrews chapter 12. Before we read our text this morning, the first thing I want to say to set the ground is this. If, if it is true that I am a broken person doing life with other broken people in a broken world, if that's true, hold on, if that's not true, then nothing else we're going to talk about will make much sense. If you're actually killing it at life, like we, we got to begin with our worldview here. If you've got it all together and you expect the people you're doing life with to have it all together, and you think life owes you something like a Hollywood fairy tale, then maybe this morning's talk won't make much sense. But if you've lived enough life to realize that you are your biggest problem, If you've lived enough life to experience somebody letting you down in some way. And if you've realized that this thing called life is fragile and frail and broken. I can just tell you, I've spent way too much time in hospitals in the last week with people that I care about to not tell you life is broken. Life is broken. If I'm a broken person. Doing life with other broken people in a world that is broken, then there is only one of two options. I will either live in bitterness or forgiveness. And there is no in-between. I will either live in bitterness or in forgiveness. That's the first blank, if you'll fill that in. I think it's on the screen somewhere. We'll get it up there in a second. If I am a broken person doing life with broken people in a broken world, then I will either live and walk in bitterness or in forgiveness. I don't think there's a third alternative. When I experience my brokenness, I will either end up bitter at me. If I experience your brokenness, I might end up bitter at you. And if I experience the brokenness of this life, I might just end up bitter at God. Or... I will be not just a recipient of God's forgiveness. I will be growing in the discipline of forgiveness towards myself, towards others, and towards my idea 
of who God is. If I am a broken person, doing life with broken people, in a broken world, then I will either walk in bitterness or forgiveness. This is the single most repeated topic I find myself in conversations with. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 12. Therefore, because life is broken, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame, what has been wounded, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Notice the discipline here to lift up drooping hands. Notice the discipline here to to make strong our weak knees. Notice the discipline here that we set our feet in a direction towards the healing that we desire. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. I'm so glad this doesn't say keep peace with everyone. Because I've done life for 14 and a half years with some of you. And I'm still striving. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm just serious. No, like sometimes we don't quite achieve what we strive for, right? But I love that because conflict is inevitable. If I'm a broken person doing life with broken people in a broken world, then conflict and disappointment is inevitable. The goal is I strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Somehow there's this relational connectedness to being holy as He is holy. Like somehow there's this idea that that raging conflict among us is almost like a dark cloud that blocks our view of God. Verse 15. See to it. I love that language. See to it. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Oh, we don't have time to, to deep dive this, but I don't even understand that language. I don't obtain grace. Grace is freely given. What does that even mean? Right? That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many, not just you, not just the heart where the root comes from, but many become defiled. There's this idea that a root of bitterness somehow chokes the flow of grace to many. Can we sit in that for a minute? Grace, the most powerful source in the universe. And somehow bitterness chokes off the flow of grace in a community, among a people. Sometimes when you have major medical work done, they'll give you a pain blocker. Right? Grace is a broken world's pain blocker. But bitterness is a broken world's grace blocker. And then he he goes on with this interesting analogy here. 
that no one is sexually immoral. Like I thought we were talking about bitterness. Or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Somehow sexual sin and impulsive selfishness are linked to this root of bitterness. And here's the thing about poor Esau. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There's this idea that there are people living with regret for behaviors that find their source in bitterness. A Christ-centered relationship will result in a forgiveness-centered relationship. We will grow in forgiveness. And I don't think, hear me this morning, I don't think there's a more miserable person in the world than a believer in Jesus who's experienced forgiveness but won't live in it. Because we've actually tasted better and we keep chugging the poison. Yesterday, the biggest story in college football. I'm sorry. I'm not happy about it either. The biggest story in college football was not what happened on the field. It was what happened on the sideline. It's the circus known as Coach Deion Sanders. He was interviewed afterwards, and instead of celebrating what his players did... He talked about himself, which is actually what he's best at. But that's another topic for another time. In there, he talked about, y'all didn't believe me when I told you this was going to be a great team. Actually, that's not what he said. He said, y'all didn't believe me when I told you I was going to be a great coach. But whatever. And then he said this phrase. I got receipts. That started trending yesterday on social media. People were like, that's my new favorite phrase. You didn't believe in me? I got receipts. That was like the headline story of opening weekend for college football. I got receipts. And I will just tell you, that might be a fun way to coach, but that is a terrible way to live. And, and there are some believers that are like a 1985 accountant. You got receipts going back decades. And literally what I've been praying for months for this Sunday morning is that we would have what I'm now calling a receipt burning party in the name of Jesus. It's time for the people of God to be free. Root of bitterness will choke off the flow of grace. He has died. He has raised again so that we would not live in the bondage of bitterness. The question is, what does that look like? How do we know if we're doing it right? My whole life I've heard the topic of forgiveness preached about. Every time I've ever heard a sermon on forgiveness, God has shown me another 30 things I need to forgive in my life. Anybody with me on that? You're like, oh, here we go again. And yet most of those sermons I walked away feeling convicted by my unforgiveness, but not sure how to do it. Back in 2000, I think it was 14 I had a moment in my life where our family had been wronged. Somebody went after my wife with their mouth talking stuff. And I was like, we got two options here. 
I can either take somebody out or I can find a way to forgive. And I, I've preached about how important forgiveness is, right? And then I realized, I don't know if I know how to do it. Like, how do I know if I'm doing it good? Like, how do I grade myself? I don't even know what the target looks like. And in His kindness, in the providence of God, I found myself reading a book where an author talked about exactly what forgiveness looks like. What he did is he he took some of the words from the New Testament that are translated forgive and just kind of unpacked them. He took a couple of the words. Here's the thing. If you're brand new to the Bible, you might not know this, um, but the Bible was not originally written in English. I know America is the center of the universe, but we weren't always. That's shocking. Um, Jesus was not even Texan. I don't know how to tell you that. Um, He probably, he probably, he probably didn't want to be. But, um, although even he knew pork barbecue is subpar to be, anyway, that's okay. Um, So the, the New Testament was mostly written in Greek and the Old Testament is mostly written in Hebrew. And, um, and so if you look at the words for Greek, that phone, I don't know, it's like I am way too fragile with my ADD this morning. I, don't, I keep looking at Lance. Um, so, yes, uh, both Greek and Hebrew are these really elaborate languages that have like multiple layers of meaning and beauty, which is why if you study the Bible more, you'll find out like we have one word and there's all these words in the Hebrew and there's all these words in the Greek and English is like, I only got one. Best I can do is one word, right? And forgive is one of those words in the new Testament. There's four words used most of the time for forgive. We're going to use those for a quick definition of what forgiveness looks like. I'll tell you why I'm using the words that I'm using. We'll move through it. You don't have to be a Greek expert this morning because neither am I, but here we go. Number one, first functional definition of forgiveness is to forgive is to place on Christ, like to set it on him, not to hand it to him, but to truly place it on him. This first Greek word, and by far it's the word that's used the most in the New Testament, uh, translated forgive. Ephemi is this idea to send away, to let go, to lay it down. But that's an incomplete definition because we get to look this side of the cross at that definition and say, we're not just laying it down randomly. We're not dropping it by the side of the road. We're truly placing this on the person of the Son of God. 146 times this word is translated forgive. In the great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, uh, Jesus says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Can anybody guess what English word in that sentence is the Greek word ephemi? Anybody? Anybody think it's reconciled? It's not. It's the word leave. Because forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Reconciliation takes two parties. And forgiveness takes one submitted to the authority of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This idea of leaving it there, this idea of laying it down, this idea that we leave our gift 
until we're ready to leave our bitterness. That we leave the altar until we're ready to leave our resentment. Another very uh, well-known passage where this word is used is in Matthew chapter 18. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translators actually think it's 70 times seven. 77 is probably a better translation because regardless, it means more than once. Right? That word forgive is aphia me. There's a picture in this, like many of the Greek and Hebrew words. It's a picture. And I believe this is a picture. This word of laying something down is a picture of an Old Testament principle called the scapegoat. It's not a legal term. That's a biblical term. What's a scapegoat in legal terms? It's an innocent person being blamed for a wrong, right? In the Old Testament, we had this instruction from God about the glorious day of atonement, the one day of a year that the people of God got to experience free standing with Him and forgiveness of sin the way that we take for granted most days. That day was different in a lot of ways. One of the ways that was different is instead of the the one big sacrifice for sin that we see again and again on the pages of the Old Testament, which makes sense if you've been around the church. We understand without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. We get that Jesus was the the sinless sacrifice, laying down his life and allowing his blood to be shed. We, We get that one. But there was a second lamb or a second goat on the Day of Atonement that was not, its blood was not shed. It was not sacrificed. That goat, the, the, the priest would publicly come up and lay his hands on the head of that sheep or that goat to symbolically place the sins of the people on that goat and then they would ephiamy it. They would send it away. They would let it go. I'm not going to sing. We have some extra biblical writings that says like, the junior priest would like usher that little sheep far out of town, up a rocky ravine, right? Like, because you don't want to wake up in the morning and the sin goat's eating your garbage. You know, that's like, get that thing out of here, right? Make sure it doesn't come back. We see this language in the prophetic words of Isaiah 53, that the one who would come, that he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows upon him, was the chastisement that bought us peace with his wounds were healed, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a picture of Jesus who knew no sin, who became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is not generically laying down my hurt. I'm placing it on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You with me? Number one, to forgive is to place on Christ. Number two, similar idea, is to release. Apoluo, 68 times the, this word, which is similar to sending away, is this idea of releasing. We read that one in Luke chapter 6, verse number 37. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This is the idea of release it. Again, same kind of picture, same kind of principle as letting it go. Same word again, number three, is uh, to forgive is to set free. 
Same idea, same language. This is the noun form of of aphiomi. This is aphesis, which is to set free as from prison. And how ironic is that? (laughs) If I'm in bondage to, to bitterness and I choose to set that person free, I'm actually the one whose shackles fall off. Anybody get the irony, the beautiful, holy, gracious irony of that? I'm going to set them free. Listen, most of the time that we're bitter at someone, they don't even know we're bitter at them. They're not in bondage. We are. This is used a lot. 17 times. Always used the same way. Let's look at a couple of these incredible passages of Scripture quickly. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness, the setting free from our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Jesus used this word when He went to His hometown, walked into the gathering, asked for one of the Isaiah scrolls and quoted from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim aphesis to the captives. Freedom, liberty, recovering of sight to the blind to, there's the word again, set at liberty. Those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's the same word he used in the upper room the night that he was betrayed. In Matthew chapter 26, he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it for you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the setting free. The forgiveness of sins. This word, in its noun form though, is different. And I need you to hear this. This is really important. This word is only ever used in the New Testament to describe God's forgiveness of us. It's almost as though the nine or ten authors of the New Testament said there's a kind of forgiveness that is just above our pay grade. There's a kind of forgiveness that is quite simply divine. And that's not, somebody hear this, that's not just true of the New Testament. The 30 plus authors of the Old Testament also had a Hebrew word that was never used to describe human forgiveness. It's the word salach. It's actually one of those awesome, Fleming Hebrew words. Salach. And all of these authors, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were like, yeah, that just describes God for God's forgiveness of us. Right? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits who salachs all our iniquities. Like we bless him because he forgives in a way that we just can't even fathom. Which means this this concept of forgiveness is dependent on a power greater than ourselves. There's a humble, submissive dependence that says, God, I need your forgiveness for this hurt, for this wound. I need something 
outside of me to set me free from what is inside of me. The fourth word, though, is so important. Because if I lay this down, my hands are what? Empty. And that is not the gospel. He does not just take our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He's in the business of giving us better than what he took. Right? And so the definition of forgiveness has to be the same. The fourth picture here to forgive is to bless. It's to bless, or you could even write to extend grace. To forgive is to bless. This is the Greek word charizomai. If you've been around this stuff before, you've heard the word charis. It's the word we translate grace. It's to extend grace. To show favor. Which makes total sense. Because I, I don't think it should be lost on us that smack dab in the middle of the word forgiveness is the word give. It's not just taking away the resentment. It's giving something in return, namely a blessing. To extend favor. Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Okay, that's the repeated picture of forgiveness. We're putting that away. Don't forget malice. But that's not the complete picture of forgiveness. Because he also says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He doesn't just take our sin. He gives us his goodness. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also Forgive, And so here is the functional working definition that you can memorize before you leave here today if you want to know how to forgive. I tend to talk negatively about coffee mug theology or bumper sticker theology. We're going to embrace it this morning. Based on that functional definition of those four words, here's how I forgive. Let go. Let God bless their heart. Let go. Let God bless their heart. If you are not from the South, if anybody ever tells you, bless your heart, I need to, I need to let you know something. They are not actually speaking a blessing over you. We mean this in a sincere way this morning. Not the typical pandering, sarcastic, condescending, oh, bless your heart, you should be wearing a helmet. That's usually what we mean, right? That's not what we're saying here. We mean actually, like God, let your blessing rest on them. Let go. I'm tired of carrying this. Let God, this is bigger than me, this is divine. He has to be the one who sets me free. And God. May you give me grace to extend. Bless the person who has wounded me. Here's why that definition is so incredibly important. In all of those definitions, we see that forgiveness is an act of the will. Forgiveness 
is an act of the will. It is actually simply obedience. Now, I'm not saying it's simple, (laughs) but it is simply obedience. I don't think you're hearing how important that is. That means I am empowered by God to decide today to walk out of here free of what I walked in holding me in bondage. Like, you have authority from God. He has empowered you through the work of the cross and the authority of the resurrection. You have hope. That thing that wounded you doesn't have to be your story anymore. That person who hurt you doesn't have to keep hurting you. God's empowered you to be done, to let it go, and to move forward in freedom and in victory and in life. That repeated uh, theme in in Hebrews chapter 12, see to it. (laughs) He wasn't like, hey, wait for lightning to strike and maybe it'll just free you from it. He's like, lift up your drooping hands. Set your feet towards healing. And start taking steps towards freedom. You don't have to be a victim to what harmed you. You don't have to be a victim to what harmed you. And I I think nothing else will shine as a light in this generation than when the people of God have been victimized, but don't live like a victim anymore. The whole culture is talking about what's been done to us. And and here's the thing, it's an easy song to sing along to, because, yeah, if you've lived long enough, you've been hurt too. At some point in time, the people of God have got to say, I'm done living in my wounds. It's time to live in freedom. I've been empowered by a resurrected Christ to not live under my pain anymore. I don't have to be a victim. And the reason that some of us struggle to forgive is we've become so comfortable playing the role of the victim, we don't know who to be apart from it. Forgiveness, because of Jesus, is an act of the will for all of us who claim to be followers of Him. Very quickly, I want to tell you what forgiveness is not, because I don't want to be heard wrongly this morning. Here's the first thing I want to say to you about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is actually not for the person who hurt us. I said it earlier, but it bears saying again. Most of the people that I've held resentment for in my heart over the years had no idea that I was wounding myself with resentment towards them. They had no idea. They had no idea. None. They were being hurt by that. I was. The flow of grace was being choked off in my own heart, and they were just like blissfully doing life. They had no clue. And there's some of them who I think had they known that I had bitterness would have been like, sweet, that was my goal. Like, it would have done nothing. Right? That sounded bitter, didn't it? I'm going to let go and let God bless their heart. Okay. 
I'm the one who's most wounded when I harbor bitterness in my heart and the people doing life closest to me. And so it's actually gloriously, righteously selfish to say, I'm not going to live in bitterness about this. It's not actually for them. I'm the one who gets hurt. Maybe you've heard the quote. Nobody knows who first said it. But unforgiveness is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Which I find it ironic that that well-known quote is literally like threatening murder. <laughs> Describing unforgiveness. Forgiveness is not actually for the person who hurt us. Number two, forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, is not dependent on an apology. Often, reconciliation is dependent on an apology. But this is not a sermon about reconciliation. That's another talk for another time. Right now I'm talking about your heart. Forgiveness is not dependent on an apology. As a matter of fact, you can forgive someone and not even tell them that you forgave them or that at one point in time you had not forgiven them. You actually could now give them something to have to forgive if you do so. When I first began to grow in the knowledge of what forgiveness was, I'd been very, uh, married a very short time. I went to see a marriage counselor because I was like, man, I realized that my dad didn't love my mom really well, and I want to know how to do that, and I don't know how to do that. And he said, okay, well, when we come back for your first session, we're going to talk about how to forgive your dad. And I was like, hey, Jack, I'm here to talk about marriage, not him. He went, exactly. He said, the kind of love you want to have in your marriage can't flow from a heart that's bound up by resentment and bitterness. I said, you're fired. <laughs> he was free. He only counseled pastors. I, you get what you pay for. Some of you were like, I know, I've been to you for counseling. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole lot of you in this room that have heard this, some of this before over a cup of coffee together, right? And one of the things I asked you is, not a trick question, but I've asked you, when did Jesus do the work of your forgiveness? He did it about 2,000 years before you asked for forgiveness. So that means if I'm a follower of him, if I'm in him in a new creation, that means I can get up tomorrow and say, God, I choose to walk in grace towards those who will harm me today. You can forgive a wrong before you found out about it. We can choose to walk in that much grace if we are truly in Christ. Forgiveness is not dependent on an apology. Oh, help me, Jesus, number three. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. There's two sides to that coin. Let me set you free. If somebody hurt you and it still feels hurtful, that doesn't mean you're unforgiving towards them. Healthy people are sad about sad things. Healthy people are angry about unjust things. It is possible to still have righteous anger and pain from negative things you've experienced in your life, but not be bound up by bitterness. Healthy people are sad about sad things. So you might actually feel lousy about the situation, but be walking in freedom. Do you know why it feels lousy? 
Because we are broken people doing life with broken people in a world that is broken. And sometimes it just feels broken. So we're not going to let those feelings determine whether or not we're walking in obedience or not. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Number four, please hear me. Forgiveness is not allowing an unsafe person back into your life without boundaries. I've watched this again and again in the church where forgiveness was preached about and people let an abusive person back into their life. Open arms. No holes barred. That is not biblical forgiveness. It is completely possible to have total forgiveness in your heart and not choose to do life closely with someone because of the repeated unhealthy pattern of abusive behavior. You follow me? Which means they might not feel like you've forgiven them. Thank goodness you'll never stand before their throne and give an account for whether or not you've forgiven them. So unhealthy people respond to healthy behaviors in an unhealthy way. That does not dictate whether or not you're responding in a healthy way or not. So you can choose to say, I'm walking in forgiveness towards them from over here, and they don't like that. And I'm going to sleep fine tonight. Not like a callous jerk, but free. You with me? Forgiveness... I struggled like crazy with this one, and maybe nobody else will. Man, this, this one, it, this was a hard battle for me to fight. Forgiveness is not a minimization. It's not brushing aside or downplaying the pain of pain, the hurt of hurt, and the wounding of wounding. I struggled with that. I, I've struggled with some deep hurts. Where I was like, but if I forgive, isn't that kind of like saying it was no big deal? Am I alone in that? Has anybody else struggled with that ever in your life? You're not giving me anything here. Anybody? Thank you. Okay, I got two people honest in the house of the Lord today. Like I'm sitting next. Okay, no. I said earlier, and I'm going to ask if you agree with me. I believe the most powerful force in the universe is the grace of God. Anybody? So if what you did to me requires the most powerful force in the universe, then that doesn't mean what you did was no big deal. <laughs> That's so freeing to me. Like, no, this, this is for real. It requires gospel grace. Oh, so I'm not crazy to say I'm just done repeating that story over and over again. Here's the last the last not. Forgiveness is an act of the will. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. The phrase forgive and forget. By the way, if that's something that you say a lot, I'm not trying to call you out or, or crack on you this morning, but just hear me. The phrase forgive and forget is not in the Bible. Do you know why it's not in the Bible? Because the Bible's true. So God doesn't command us to do impossible things. Forgive and forget is actually not possible for most wounds. We have the privilege of living in a day and in a generation where we know more about the human brain than any generation before us in human history. What we've learned about trauma is the deeper the wounding, the deeper into the recesses of the long-term memory that event is stored. 
So actually, the deeper you hurt me, the more likely I will never forget. So if the definition of forgiveness is forgetting, I'm set up for instant failure. You with me? Truly, science tells us that the deeper that trauma is or that wound is, the only way I will forget that is, God forbid, brain injury or some form of brain disease. I don't think that sounds like what God is calling us to embrace and rush towards. He's not telling us to forgive and forget. I quoted earlier from Psalm 103. In there it talks about him removing our sin as far as the east is from the west. Right? The scriptures talk about a sea of forgetfulness that God places our sins. Some of you were like, I know, my wife goes fishing there. Every time I forget something, she brings it back up. It's like, don't remember that one time. I'm going to walk over here. So the only person with the capacity to forgive and forget is who? It's God, right? How do we know that? Because he told us. That doesn't sound very forgetty. He constantly actually reminds us of what he's forgiven. Which just doesn't sound forgetful at all. He actually reminds us to remember how much he's forgiven so that it'll transform us. He's constantly reminding us of what he's forgiven us of. I'm running out of time. Okay, so he says he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, not the north and the south. Have you ever heard this before? I I think we're making it up because the writers of the Old Testament did not understand poles. It is, however, a very helpful idea. If I travel to the North Pole... And I take a step in any direction. I'm now traveling south. But if I start traveling east, at any point in time, will I start traveling west? And literally this idea that he removes our sins as far as the east from the west is this idea that I will live for eternity and never run into my sins again. Glory, praise God. Come on. How good a news is that? Which means if I'm modeling forgiveness to the people I'm orbiting this lovely planet with, that's me saying, you won't run into how you've wronged me as long as you're doing life with me. I'm not going to throw it in your face. Forgive and forget is not a biblical principle. It's not a one-time event. We talked earlier about Peter. If I forgive him seven times, am I awesome then, Jesus? Do I get the forgiveness merit badge? And then Jesus responds with something like 77 times. And and it doesn't record Peter's response, which is so disappointing. (laughs) Right? You're as broken as me. Because I just think you're just like, huh? (laughs) How many times? I need some more loaves and fish. Like, he had to be like, I thought I was winning at this. And what's interesting is I don't think Jesus means forgive that person that many times. I think he's saying forgive that sin that many times. So this is way more than a one-time event. So then how do I forgive? When do I forgive? How often do I do this? What does that look like? Let me share a story with you and then we'll... We'll end at the bottom of the page. We're almost done. 
After Bryson was born, our church did what church people do. You made us food. Somebody brought a casserole over. We ate the casserole. We stuck the casserole dish to soak in the sink overnight. Because back in the dark ages, our, our dishwasher didn't work. Can you believe the horror of that? We had to wash dishes with our hands. Let it soak overnight. And I remember a Saturday morning. I woke up on Saturday morning. It was a very cold November, oddly cold November morning. And I woke up and both Marisa and the newborn Bryson were asleep. Which for all of the parents, the newborn, you're like, it's Christmas. What happened? Right? So I very quietly got Ethan and Garrett up and took them out in the living room. And I made breakfast for them. I warmed up Pop-Tarts. And I cared for them. I turned on cartoons. And I cleaned up after the Pop-Tarts. And I went to the kitchen to start washing the dishes. Oh, I started a fire in the fireplace so that Marisa got up. There would be a fire going. And I'm literally thinking, I'm going to get the Husband of the Year merit badge. Right? I'm killing it at life today. I go to pick up the casserole dish that had been soaking overnight. Somehow, it had broken the whole length of the dish. But I'm blind as a bat, as you know, so I didn't see that. I picked it up full of water, and it just separated in two on my knuckle. I saw my knuckle. It was really white. I don't do medical stuff super great. So I was like, Ugh. And so, because it was a finger wound, I couldn't get it to stop bleeding. Like it just bled and bled and bled and never slowed down. And so I went from earning Husband of the Year award to waking her up. I got to go get stitches. You got the kids. Good luck with that. Never did get the dad of the year merit badge. but So I go to the, the closest ER or whatever, and they're like, oh, we can't stitch this because finger wounds are delicate. You have to go to a hand doctor. And I'm like, there's such a thing as a hand doctor? Like, you go to medical school for that long and you can only work on the hands? I don't know what that means. And so Monday I go into the hand doctor and they stitch it up. Fast forward about a week or two, um, it started hurting a hundred times worse than when I cut it. And I realized a piece of the corningware has broken off and is inside the wound as it's healing around it. And I'll just be honest, since this was a sermon about bitterness, um, I literally had the thought, dude, all you do is hands. You know what I mean? Like, I was sincerely mad. And so I go back in and I explain to the physician's assistant, whoever came in first, you know, what in the world? And so then the doctor comes in and I'm like, bruh. And kind of pandering, a little condescending, he was like, there's not a piece of, of stuff in there. And I'm like, dude, I'm telling you there is. I can feel it. He said, we'll humor you and do x-rays, but I think I know what's going on. They do x-rays. He comes back in. He shows me the x-rays. There's no piece of anything in there. I'm like, what? I came in here ready to, like, fight you. He said, here's what happened. 
He said this wound was so deep that it severed all those nerve endings. And there's so many nerves in, in the human hand. It's, it's fascinating. He said the problem is as they are trying to reattach and reheal, there's scar tissue in between them and your brain thinks there's currently something there and it's sending messages to you. And I said, okay, thanks. Fix it. He said, well, here's the problem. He said, there's only two ways to fix this. Problem, or uh, solution number one, rather, is I reopen this wound, dig out the scar tissue, and hope it doesn't reform as it starts healing again, which it most certainly will. I'm like, okay, option two, please. He said, well, option two, you're going to think I'm crazy. I said, I walked in here thinking you were crazy. (laughs) He said, option number two is go to Home Depot and buy the roughest sandpaper they sell or buy some Velcro on the Velcro aisle and take the really rough part. He said, and for the next couple weeks, if you're sitting still for a couple minutes, pull that sandpaper out and rub it on that wound as hard as you can possibly stand. And your brain is going to scream at you. I said, what? He said, he said, you've got to have the discipline to retrain your brain about the difference between a past wound and a current wound. And I said, that's a sermon illustration. (laughs) So here's the deal. We, We do the hard work of obedient forgiving every time it hurts. Every time it hurts, we take the sandpaper of grace to that thing and say, this has already been carried away. God, forgive me for chasing down the scapegoat and taking it back. I'm going to re-release this for maybe the 76th time today. And I'm going to ask you again to set me free from this. And would you replace it with grace in my heart towards that person? This is the prayer. Jesus, I lay down whatever that bitterness is, whatever that wound is, whatever that resentment is, I lay it down. I place it on you because only you can set me free of it. And I pray blessings over those who hurt me. Now, here's my encouragement about this prayer that you now have a copy of. Therefore, sorry, you're accountable for it. My encouragement to you is to write this prayer out. If you're not a journaler, just create a note on your phone. Number one, write it. Number two, pray it. The number three, speak it to someone. Someone safe in your life who can hold you accountable. To say, listen, I, I laid this thing down. And I believe this is an ongoing 77 times kind of a thing. But every journey of 77 steps starts with the first And so I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I'm challenging some of you to lay it down before you walk out these doors. Some of you walked in here carrying some stuff. As soon as I started talking about forgiveness, some of you went, ugh. Because that little thing's become like a pet. Today's the day to set it free. To lay it down. There's some people in this room that I'm going to challenge that as we sing about the work of Christ this morning, I'm going to challenge you to come down here to this altar and to lay it down. 
Say, God, I'm walking out of here without this in my hands. Now, by the time lunch is over, I might have picked it back up. But today I'm taking a step, and I'm going to lay this down today. For some of you, you'd say, I'm not sure I've ever taken that first step. I don't know for sure that I have a relationship with God. Here's the deal. I believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross knowing the worst of us and said, you're worth it. I will do the work of forgiving you. And he's already made his forgiveness available to us. If you don't know for sure that you've experienced what Jesus calls being born again, then my encouragement is that you wouldn't leave here today without having a conversation with somebody. As we sing this last song about Christ and Christ crucified, there'll be some folks in the prayer room in the back. If you're worshiping with us online, you can text PRAYFW to 94000 because we want you to experience this thing that he's challenging us to live out relationally. There's a phrase in Alcoholics Anonymous that says you cannot transmit that which you do not possess. If you actually go to AA meeting, the way they'll probably say that is you can't give what you don't got. Forgiveness begins by knowing we've experienced it and that we've received it. One of the reasons we come together once a week to celebrate the work of the cross is to be reminded again what's available to us so that we can live as broken people with broken people in a broken world. Not in bitterness, but living in gospel forgiveness.